Lord, just good to be here this evening. And once again, for your glory. The worship for your glory. All these outreaches for your glory. The teaching for your glory. Help us to learn and to grow. Not just have ears to hear, but ears to hear and apply it. And really put it into practice, Lord. In your name, amen. Now, if you weren't with us last week, we talked about how they finished the conquest, if you will, of the promised land that they were in. This is a process that took about five to seven years. As you're reading through the book of Joshua, sometimes we have a tendency to lose track of time. Well, it took about five to seven years for them to take care here of this promised land, and that's exactly what did. So now the major military operations are over, if you will. There's some mop-up operations, and this continues on through the book of Judges, which we'll get to in a little bit. But since the major military operations are over, there's over 30 kings mentioned in Joshua 12 that they have defeated. It's time now for them to start dividing up the land. And this is what takes the place for the rest of the book of Joshua, is the dividing up the land. Now, when you read through this, it's really easy just to read this and start letting your mind kind of wander. Because it starts talking about they get the border to this, they get so much, then every now and then somebody else comes back and says, we would like some more, and there's some little arguments here, some little fights there. We really need to stop and understand a couple things that's going on here. And I just made a list of some things as we get ready to get into this divvying up the land. Imagine yourself at Christmas as a child. You're just excited. And so as you imagine yourself at Christmas as a child, you come down, you look, and there the tree is just completely covered with presents. And the only thing you care about is what? Which one is yours? You don't care about anybody else's. You only care about yours. And depending what family you grew up in, if you grew up in a free-for-all family... You know what I mean. You get your gifts and you can open as soon as we want and do whatever you can. If you grew up in the family that you have to go one by one by one, you know what I'm talking about. Our family is a one by one family. There's five boys. There's seven of us. Most of the time at Christmas, we got other people living with us. Sometimes there's ten of us. It takes about two days to kind of get through everything. And so what happens is you see these kids with the eager anticipation Well, they have been waiting 40 years for this land. There's some eager anticipation. There's a lot going on. And so as you read through this now, thousands of years later, you kind of stop and say, I don't care what their eastern border was. I don't care what the northern, southern, western border was. I don't care who were the people in the land they had to drive out. Yeah, but they really did care. It was a really big deal. I call these chapters God's Refrigerator. If you would come to my refrigerator, if you'd come to my office, I have artwork that my kids have done. You have pictures that my kids like, and they're hanging up in my office. And as you come in, you really don't care. It's not your child. It's not your kid. There's not an emotional attachment to that. If you come to my house and you see what's on my fridge, you really don't care. So we have a tendency to look at this and say, this has nothing to do with me. And so I really don't care. Yeah, but you know what? It's a really big deal to God. So since it's a really big deal to God, let's take some time and find out why it's a really big deal to God and then make it a really big deal to us. Because here's a nice little rule in life. If something's really important to God, let's make it really important to us. And if something's not important to God, then it's probably not really important to us. When I'm going through the Gospels and I'm going through Luke right now, I see how important it is for Jesus to get up early in the morning and pray. I'm like, okay, Jesus, that was really a big deal to you. So that must be a really big deal to me as well, too. And we just kind of learn from these things as we go through this. So this is important. Why? First things first, just making some points here. This takes years to do. Years. First 13 chapters here, maybe 12 chapters of Joshua, five to seven years. 
five to seven years. The next 13, excuse me, next 10 chapters or so, we're talking maybe 20 years. Sometimes we lose track of time as we're going through a book. We don't know for sure how long, but we do know this. Military operations stopped right around 85, 86, 87 for Joshua, and he lived to be 110. So we know that there's another 20 years of history here that's going to go on, and it looks like that takes a while. So please remember as we're going through this. And it takes a while because they need to go spy out the land again, mark off their territories. They need to do all this other stuff. Number two, you're going to see a lot of infighting. Sad to say, you're going to see a lot of infighting. Can you go with me to 1 Timothy 6, please? 1 Timothy 6. And this hasn't changed in thousands of years. If one brother gets something, the other brother needs to get something. Once again, with five boys, our rule has always been this. Whatever anybody gets, we share it. So back to the Christmas analogy, the Christmas example. If one of the boys opens up something for Christmas, they may have the fun, they may have the joy of opening up that gift, and that gift may be theirs. But as soon as it's opened up, any one of the other brothers gets to use it as well. We kind of share everything. That's just the rule we have. Now, this is the mentality that's supposed to be in the body of Christ. What I have is not mine, it's the Lord's. And so therefore, if you could be blessed by it, then I should be willing to say, take it, and vice versa. And the same thing with time, energy, and resources. If there's something I could do to help you go deeper in the Lord, I should be able to say that I want to help you and I want to bless you. The problem is there's this selfish sin nature that pops up and says, no, this is mine. And just really be careful with that word, mine. When you fully understand the sovereignty of God and you understand that the Bible says you were bought at a price and you are not your own, what do we remotely think that we own? It's all the Lord's. So therefore, this land is all God's. And there shouldn't be any infighting between the tribes of I want more or this is mine. Sad part is that happens. We're going to get to that here later on as well, too. I just want to remind you, though, the mentality we're supposed to have. Look at 1 Timothy 6 with me, please. Start in verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Nobody disagrees with that. I don't think any of you here have the Egyptian mindset of whatever you're holding, you get to take with you to the next life when you die. If anybody's ever been around the final moments of people's life, you're really not thinking about possessions at that time. We know this. You know this. Look at one more time with me at verse 7. We brought nothing into this world and is certain we can carry nothing out. You know this. we got to put it into practice. you got to put it into practice when it comes to you didn't get the raise you wanted, you didn't get the overtime you wanted, you didn't get the money you wanted, you didn't get the boat, the house, whatever. you just got to let it all go. Because why? Verse 8, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. I say to the boys all the time, do you have food in your belly? Yeah. Do you got a roof over your head? Yeah. you got clothes on your back? Yeah. Then according to the Bible, that's all we need. we got to be careful. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Please do note verse 10, it's not money. As a root of all kind of evil, it's a love of money. I know many people that are very financially blessed, and they look at their lives as an opportunity to give and give and give some more. That's the way it's supposed to be. If you go study out Corinthians 9, any blessing you receive financially 
is a way for you to go bless somebody else. And if you could get that mindset that when more money comes in, because you really don't have many needs, I don't really need to go get anything else, then I can just take that money and go bless somebody else. And guess what? The Lord just keeps bringing more money in, and then you just keep giving more money out, and it's just this wonderful cycle that God keeps doing, because he says, I'll keep blessing you because you're blessing other people, and the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive, and it's just this wonderful, wonderful thing. So if you are blessed where money's not an issue for you, start praying right now. Who can I help? Who can I bless? What mission can I support? Who can I represent Jesus Christ with? How can I store up treasures in heaven? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Jump ahead to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. But in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy, let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. I'm just going to speak for myself with this one. Verse 17, uncertain riches. It's been a while ago. Dawn and I were in a spot where it, you know, things were financially very good. And so the money was sitting there, and we didn't know what to do with the money. And I'm not going to lie. Our first thought was not, oh, we should really go do something with this ministry-wise. It was like, oh, we got this money. Now it's time for us to upgrade this or get this that we've always wanted. So we tried to be Christian about it. And you kind of start doing the tentative prayer. And your tentative prayer really isn't, Lord, it's your money. What do you want me to do with it? It's, Lord, we have this money, and this is what we're thinking about doing with it. And so, Lord, could you bless this? And so what happened is completely, utterly unexpected. There was this very nice chunk of money that was sitting there. And what happened is we had these bills pop up completely, utterly unexpected and completely drained that money that was sitting there. Now, this is just for me, so don't get mad at me. This is just for me. We stopped, and that really was a life lesson to us saying, the reason God drained it is because we really weren't thinking about eternity with it. It was just something we were going to bless ourselves with. It says in the book of Amos, if I remember correctly, that your money bags have holes in them. And then you get paid at work, and by the time you get home, the bag is empty. Do you ever realize that? And you sit there and you say, where did it all go? The Lord has a tendency to drill holes at the bottom of your bucket. To say, if you're not going to use this money wisely for eternity, why should I let you have it? So that was a life lesson for us. And at that point, we started saying, Lord, any money that comes in. I mean, we had already tithed. We would already given offerings above our tithe. But any money that comes in, we stop and say, Lord, it is yours. Who can we bless? Who, who can we do this? And it's not us, it's the Lord. And that has changed our mindset. And this is what we have been doing now for a while. And I tell you, you just keep giving it away. And God just keeps giving you more and more and more. Because of Corinthians 9... He says, just give more away. And that's what I see in verse 17. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. There's not a material possession I need. There's not. There's nothing I absolutely need. Do I have a list of wants? You bet. I try not to focus on those. But there's really nothing I need. And you know what? There's not a single thing my kids need. Not a single thing. In a few months, we're going to start being asked by family members, what's their Christmas list? I don't know. There's nothing we need. We're just going to collect more stuff. God's already given us richly all things to enjoy. And so I want you to remember that as we start going through this and you start seeing these people that are just one generation away from being slaves and now have this whole land and they start fighting amongst themselves. It is so very sad. Our next point before we actually get into this to remember. Please remember... 
some of the people didn't want the land. Look at look with me at Joshua 18, verse 1. Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. And there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers had given you? Pick out from among you three men from each tribe, and I will send them. And they shall rise and go through the land, survey it according to the inheritance, and come back to me. They didn't want to do some of it. Now there's tribes that are fighting. There's some that didn't want it. Now why in the world would they not want it? I don't know. Fear? There's still some pockets of resistance, which we'll get into at a later time. Laziness. This generation that gets this land has only ever experienced being nomads through the desert. Pillar of fire, cloud, manna. That's what they've experienced. This idea of now settling down. I'm sorry, this has changed. I can't do anything different. Was it laziness? I don't know. But I tell you, I want you just to chew on this. I wonder if that's us sometimes. Well, the Lord has just kind of opened the floodgates to us and says, it's yours, go, what do you want to do with it? And when I mean, I don't mean collecting possessions for himself, I'm saying, what do you want to do for the Lord? It's out there. And, and why don't we take that step spiritually? I don't know, maybe it's fear. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. My words are going to send someone to hell or something. It's laziness. I just don't want to. I want to work my 8, 9, 10, 11 hours. I want to come home, eat my supper, watch my television, and just wait for my next day off. That's what I'm going to eagerly anticipate. I try to talk to any cashier that we talk to at Walmart, just try to start up a conversation, see where the Lord goes. And I was talking to one today, and, you know, just making small talks, seeing if the Lord opens a door. And here it is Wednesday. And, you know, I'm saying, so, hey, what are you looking forward to this week? She's already counting down. She gets the weekend off. So 72 hours, that, that's her whole life right now, is just she can't wait for the weekend off. So does that mean we just try to get through Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? And, and you have ever seen how the world acts this way? I heard a great teaching last week, and I'll give credit. Alistair Bagg gave this teaching. And he says, I, he says, I want you to stop and look at how the world always has you looking forward to something else. And never just stopping and saying, what am I supposed to be doing now? He says, when you're at home and you get home from work from a long day, because the only thing when you do when you flip the TV on is they keep reminding you what's coming on at 9 o'clock. And you think, oh, I could do that. You know, if I just get to 7 o'clock, it's Wheel of Fortune in Jeopardy. You know, then I can do that for an hour. And then I'm sure there's going to be a rerun of Hogan's Heroes on at 9. I always like that. You know, we just kind of woe through it. And then when you get through the weekend, and he's talking about how when you're coming home from work on Friday, the weekend, all the radio stations are excited, and it's the weekend, and, and you know, it's everything about the weekend. And then you just make it through the weekend, and then when you go back to work on Monday, and you're turning the radio on at 6.30 in the morning on your commute, everybody's like, oh, it's Monday. And then that's what it is, and it's just this rinse-repeat cycle of life. And the Lord is trying to tell you, Why? Why, why, why can't you just stop and realize every day is this exciting adventure in God, and it could be your last day on this earth. It really could. Jesus could return, or you could go home by physical death. I don't want to spend my day looking forward to some TV show or some future date, because right here is now is the time to serve the Lord. And I see these tribes 
that didn't take the land. And Joshua has to come and almost kind of rebuke them a little bit, saying, why aren't you doing this? And I'm going to be honest, sometimes I feel that way spiritually. I see people that proclaim Christ verbally, and I don't see anything in their lives that say, I'm really looking forward towards eternity. And sometimes I want to go to them and say, why are you doing this? Why why don't we look forward to eternity? Let's go take this promised land. Let's go do this and represent Jesus in all we do and say. And let the fear, the laziness, the fear of change, the busyness go. And just stop and say, Lord, this is exciting. I wonder what you got in store for today. I can't imagine my life being get up, go to work, come home, eat supper, get through the evening, then get up, go to work, come home. And just that's, that's my whole existence. There has to be something that drives me further than this world for an eternal mindset. And I hope that we can get that mindset as we just continue through this. So i got one more point to make here before we get into the actual, what the main lesson is. Um, any quick questions, comments about anything here of just understanding what we're doing over the next uh, couple weeks with this lesson here, dividing the land, making sure we're all on the same page with that. We're good? Okay. Now, here's our point that we're going to really focus on tonight. There's a lot about ages. We're going to find out here that uh, how it starts out that Joshua is getting old. Verse 1, Joshua 13. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old, advanced in years. There remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land yet remains. And he goes through and he starts listening to the name. Joshua, you're going to die. I don't know why we're afraid to mention that. You here tonight are either going to get raptured out or you're going to die. And if you die physically, you're spending eternity in heaven or hell. That, that's the reality of what we live in. Now, what are you going to do with that information? You're just going to pretend you're not going to die? No. Verse 1. Some of you are old. You're advanced in years. God's telling you the end is coming. For some of us, we think we have longer than what we have. We may not. We really don't know. So God is telling Joshua here, what's the plan, Joshua? What are you going to do with this information? Joshua ends up living for about, like I said, about another 20 plus years. He lives to 110. We know that from the book of Judges. And the remaining years of his life are pretty busy. Now, this is something that we really don't think about here in America. And I gave that message a couple weeks ago, and I quoted John Piper on that about his seashells message, about how we spend so much time and energy trying to get our perfect American retirement dream. And really what we're supposed to be doing in our remaining years is serving the Lord with everything we have. And for some reason, we have this mindset that I'm going to work a lot, and then I'm going to retire and just do nothing until I die or Jesus returns, and I'm going to enjoy well, I want you to enjoy it, but enjoy it in the Lord. And look at the time you have. You were willing to give 40, 50 hours a week to a job. Now you got 40, 50 hours a week for the Lord. There's so much that can be done. Joshua spent the remaining years of his life this. But the focus really tonight is going to be on Caleb. Go with me to Joshua 14. I love this guy, Caleb. Absolutely love him. Joshua 14, verse 6. Caleb's coming to get his land. Verse 6, And the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kinsanite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him that was in my heart. 
Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot is trodden shall be your inheritance and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. Now, flashback 45 years. Book of Numbers, chapter 14. They're going out to spy the land. You know the story. Twelve spies go out. Twelve spies come back. Joshua and Caleb are two of the spies. The other ten spies said, these people are too big. They're too powerful. We can't do it. Joshua and Caleb are the only two that says, we can do this. We can take these giants. We can take this land. God is with us. Don't be afraid. It gets so bad. There's a rebellion against Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb that God intervenes on and kills the rebels and because they were going to kill those people and start anew. So Joshua and Caleb are the only ones from that generation. So when these two guys show up, they're the only ones. And Caleb says, listen, you know what happened 40 years ago. You and I said we can do this. No one believed this. So we had to go on this little roundabout tour for 40 years So everybody dies off, and now we're finally where we're supposed to be. Should have been 40 years ago. Moses promised me this land, Numbers 14. I'm ready for this land. So this puts him at about 85 years old. Take a look at this. Verse 10. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. What I love about Caleb is you get to see him in different seasons of life. We don't get that with a lot of characters in the Bible. We we get a little snapshot of them. There's certain ones like Daniel that you get to watch from a teenager to old age. David from a teenager to old age. It's pretty neat to see. Caleb's one of those guys you get snapshots of his life. You get to see him at 40. You get to see him at 85. Look at this guy. Verse 11. Yet I am as strong this a day... As on the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain, which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim, remember, they were the giants. We talked about them last week were there. And that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenzanite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kedreth Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rested from war. I just want to spend the rest of the night talking about Caleb. I turned 41 this year. So 41. So I can relate a little bit to this idea of Caleb around 40 sending the spies out. At 40, you're starting to understand life a little bit more. you still got some physical energy. And so what happened at 40? At 40, Caleb said, I'm going to take a stand for God. Everybody's against me. There's only Moses, Aaron, Joshua. Everybody else wants to kill us. He took a stand for God. I see a lot of guys in their 40s, early 50s, start going through what we like to call the midlife crisis. Why? Because I think they're only thinking about themselves. See, what starts to happen at that age, 40 to 50 for men and women, your responsibilities with kids start to diminish because they're getting older now. You don't have to do every single thing for them. Maybe you're finally getting ahead of life financially a little bit, so now you have disposable income, which you didn't have back in your 20s and 30s. You still feel like you're a kid, 
I mean, every now and then the body acts up a little bit. For the most part, you still do this. And then all of a sudden, there's this thinking back. You know, we always call middle age 50. Okay, you realize that's a lie. You're not living to 100. Middle age is 35. It really is. Think about that. I'm not trying to depress you. Let's just be honest. God says you get 70 years, maybe if you're lucky, 80. So you're past middle age. Your body's starting to get a little slower. You look back and you say, what have I accomplished? What am I doing? You're getting closer to the finish line than already the beginning. And so what happens is, from a world standpoint, you now have some disposable income. You've got more time because the kids are older. And now you start thinking about who? Yourself. What would I like to do? What would I enjoy? What would I like to spend money on? What is all about me? And you start counting down to retirement, and it's really all about you. What's Caleb doing at 40? He's saying, there's giants. Let's go kill them. I love that. Can you imagine if that's what would happen? If we would spend our early years doing exactly what the Bible says, you get saved, hopefully at an early age, and you spend that time learning God's Word, growing in God's Word, learning how to witness, how to pray, how to be in the Word. And so then when you hit this middle-aged life, late 30s, early 40s, you're like, I got the wisdom through the Lord to know what to say, how to say, when to say it. I got the physical strength to do it. Let's go kill some giants. Can you imagine how different the world would be, the different the body of Christ would be? That'd be amazing. And what would happen if we kept that going? That at 85, verse 10, you still say, I want more giants. I haven't killed enough giants. What would happen if we would stop at that time at 85 and say, listen, look what he says right here, verse 11. I'm as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and coming in. Now, I don't know if that's bravado or Bible. I don't know. He says a little bit later on in verse 12, it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out. Caleb basically says, I don't know, but I'm going to do it. Don't you think at this time Caleb had a a child that probably could have been pushing 60? Dad, just sit at the bottom of the mountain. Don't. (laughs) Don't, Dad. Come on. Don't you think Caleb had grandkids? Or the grandkids, Grandpa, just just sit. Tell us stories about Egypt. What was it like watching the Red Sea be parted? Caleb's like, I got a taste for giants. I'm going to go get some. I think we forget what Caleb was like. Go back to Numbers 14, please. Numbers 14. Caleb at 40 was a man that knew what to do. Let's actually start in Numbers 13, please. We'll go back just a little bit. So they send out the 12 spies. They come back saying the land is amazing. Problem is, verse 28, the people that dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, very large. We saw giants there. Caleb, verse 30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb at 40, let's go do this. Everybody else comes back and says, we saw the giants. We saw the giants. So what do they do? Chapter 14, verse 4, let's get a new leader. Let's head back to Egypt. That's a great idea. Let's head back into slavery. 
Moses and Aaron, verse 5, start praying. Joshua, verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, a sign of mourning. They spoke to all the congregation, the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land. They are our bread. We're going to eat them. If you got the NIV, it says, we will devour them. The guy hasn't changed in 45 years. I love that. I love that personality where somebody comes up with this vision. And it's like, what? let's go do this. Oh, no, we can't do that. The giants are too big. You got that one guy that says, what are you talking about? Let's just do it. Let's see what happens. I don't know what the answer is. But let's just go up the mountain and see. I think sometimes we as believers sit here and think of every reason why we can't rather than let's just go out there and try one time and see what happens. Start up a conversation with your neighbor. See what happens. Start up a Bible study. See if people come. Start up a ministry. As long as it's not satanic or unbiblical, God be with you. If it's going to further the gospel, God be with you. But we sit here and we're afraid of giants. Caleb says, let's eat them. So now back to Joshua 14. Verse 12. Giants, the Anakim were there. And maybe the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. They're my bread. And guess what? Jump ahead one chapter. 15, verse 14. It's just a quick little verse that you would have a tendency to skip over. Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there. Sheshia, Anaham, and Tama, the children of Anak. 85-year-old man took down three giants. That's what he does. How? Okay, now we need to get to what's the secret to Caleb's success. It is not a secret in any way whatsoever. I want you to, as you, as you read through the Bible, and I want you to look for words that are repeated. God never repeats something for no reason. So as you go through 14, there's a word that's repeated. 14 verse 8. I wholly followed the Lord my God. 14 verse 9. Holy followed the Lord my God. 14 verse 14. Holy followed the Lord God of Israel. Some of your translations say wholeheartedly. That's the secret to Caleb's success. His heart was completely, utterly devoted to the Lord in whatever he did and said. So giants absolutely meant nothing to him. Can you imagine if we would fear God more than we'd fear man? We, just think about that. Can you imagine if you would stop and say... I can't do that because I fear God more than the consequences of not doing that. I mean, it would just be like this. I, I, there's giants. I know what's going to kill them. Why? Because God's with us. But what happens if you go up the mountain and fail? Then I go to heaven. I'm 85. I don't care. Because look what happens right here. I may. I shall be able to drive them out. Caleb doesn't know what's going to happen, but he's willing to give it a try. I love it. And I'm just asking you, do we wholeheartedly wholeheartedly follow the Lord. Now, I already know the answer to that. So if you're going to leave in the next 10 minutes, you're not going to hear the last verse that is really, really important tonight. Because we're going to start out this, and it's going to get a little tough here for a little bit. Because we're going to talk about wholeheartedly following the Lord. Okay, go back with me to Deuteronomy 10. There are so many passages in the Bible that talk about wholeheartedly following the Lord that I was going to read them to you, and it's like there's just too many of them. Because this is an ongoing theme that God says very simply, as you go to Deuteronomy 10, He goes, God says, I'm asking for one thing, and that's everything. 
You've heard me use this analogy before, and it's not my original analogy. It was John Corson first said it. He said, so often we look at our meals, divide it up. You know, you got your food here, your food there. And, God, and John Corson said, God wants you to look like a pot pie. It's all together. So I appreciate I really do. You're out here on a Wednesday night. It's a beautiful evening. Amen. You're going to be out here for about an hour, and I really do mean that. Amen. What are we doing with the other 23 hours of the day? I mean, if you think about it, if you come on a Wednesday and you come on a Sunday, we have face-to-face interaction for about two hours. And that's assuming I get a chance to talk to you, shake your hand. If I end with an altar call or prayer, I won't be able to do it. That means there's what? Six days, 22 hours. That we don't know how each other is doing spiritually, do we? We look good for this hour here. We look good for the hour on Sunday. God's saying, what's going on with the other six days and 22 hours? Are we wholeheartedly following the Lord? Look what he says here in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. How simple is that? If you are sitting here tonight and you're in this little phase of life saying, I don't know what the Lord wants of me. What is my vision? What is my future? And it seems like people spend so much time trying to figure out what God wants them. Isn't it just answered right here in verse 12? What does God want of you? This is what he wants. Verse 12. Do you fear him? Do you have a healthy respect that he is God and you're not? Do you walk in all of his ways? Do you love him? Do you serve him with all your heart? With all your soul? Do you keep his commandments? Do you keep his statutes? That's what he's asking you. So when I have somebody come up to me and they're like, I, I don't know what the Lord wants me to do. I got to figure out what college to go to. I got to figure out what job to take. I got to figure out this. Well, wait a second. You're, you're kind of getting ahead of yourself. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13. Are you fearing him, loving him, obeying him, living it out? That's what he's asking for you first. And before you think that we're overemphasizing this, go with me, please, to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Just to make sure that we understand that this is abundantly clear what the Lord wants. In Matthew 22, verse 34, Jesus is asked a question. Matthew 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asking him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? So what's the greatest commandment in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? As far as we can tell, there's 613 rules and laws in there. Jesus, what's the most important thing to know from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Verse 37. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Those are the words of your Savior. It said the most important thing that you can get out of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is to love God with absolutely everything you have. And the second most important thing, verse 39, is now go love your neighbor. How simple is that? It's absolutely simple. I was talking to two friends this week that are not Christians. Uh, They're from a uh, different religion. And so we were explaining to them Christianity. And we were talking about the simplicity of Christianity. They were going through what their different religious rules and things that they have to do aren't as very complex and a lot of this and a lot of that. 
And so they were asking questions about baptism. So I explained to them what baptism was. And I explained how Paul said in Corinthians, he talks about the simplicity of Jesus. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You know, John 14, 6, there's only one way to get to heaven. And they said on their own, they said, that's the problem with Christianity. It's too simple. Too simple. And I look at this. This is the great example of the simplicity of God. Jesus, could you help me understand Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Sure. Love God with everything, now go love your neighbor. Wow. You just summed up four books in two verses. Yeah. It's not complicated, guys. The question is, are we doing it? Can you sit here tonight and say that I am wholeheartedly following God with everything, just like Caleb did? Can I say I'm wholly following him? Can I say that I'm doing what Deuteronomy says? Lord, I'm going to fear you, love you, keep your commandments, obey you, and I'm going to do what Jesus said. I'm going to love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and go out and love my neighbor. That is Christianity one-on-one. That is the foundational blocks. That's what it is right there. That's what he's asking for, very simply, is everything. And that's what made Caleb, if you would use this word, so successful. is because he said, it's all yours, Lord. At 40, I'm completely yours. 85, I'm completely yours. There, there's not a time in my life when I'm holding back and saying, no, this, this is my season. No, it's all about the Lord. And I just encourage it tonight, wholeheartedly follow him with everything and just see what happens. Is it difficult? You bet it is. Because I got this flesh thing that wants to live and grow. But I also want to die to that. And the more I give over to the Lord and the more I die to, the more I wholeheartedly follow Him. It's this amazing thing of just, Lord, this is what it looks like to live for you. Here, here's my life, my time, my finances, my everything. And just you just take it. Let me impact eternity. And it's just amazing. I just encourage you. Give it a try. See what it's like to live just completely for Him. Let's do it together. Now, I haven't got to my verse yet to close with, so no one's left yet. So, Miles left, but he came back. But the point is, I'm just kidding. I'm not. He did. And I love Miles. He can handle that. Now, the rest of you are afraid. One of you is like, I was just going to get up, and I'm afraid to. <laughs> Any quick questions, comments about anything here? About the wholeheartedly, before we get to the final verse and understanding Caleb's life, he was going to go eat giants. I love that. Anybody? Okay. Go with me now to Romans 7. I think Romans 7 is probably the most honest chapter in the Bible. Probably right up there with Psalm 51. If you've never read Psalm 51, it's the psalm that David wrote through the Spirit after his sin with Bathsheba. Romans 7. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, I hear you, this wholehearted, follow him with everything I got, obey, love, with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, okay, I can't. I know, I can't either. (laughs) That's the hard part. When you ask what God wants, he just wants everything. I can't. It's my flesh. You know, Jesus summed up your goal in Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That's all he's asked for. Think about this. Jesus Christ has asked for everything you have, every breath, every thought, every dollar, every finance, every moment of your time, and he's asked you to be perfect. That's all he's asked for. You know how hard that is. So what happens when I hear a teaching like this, and I walk out of this teaching, and I'm just a whip puppy? And I say, I can't. I can't do it. So what happens is, since I feel like I can't do it, I go home and I do nothing. Because it's just too completely, utterly overwhelming. Or I go home and I become legalistic. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to set my clock an hour earlier. I'm going to get up and I'm going to read and pray. I'm only going to listen to worship music and I'm going to do this. And then when I get home from work tomorrow, it's going to be what widow can I love? What orphan can I take care of? And I'm just going to do this. And it becomes this legalistic have to. So then all of a sudden the joy of the Lord goes out the window. Because you realize, oh, I didn't love a widow today. I didn't take care of an orphan. I didn't witness today. And I didn't read enough today. And I didn't pray enough today. And you forget that even though you didn't witness, pray, or anything, Jesus still just loves you. So don't give up because it's too difficult. Don't become legalistic. What would happen if we just do what Paul did in Romans 7? Would you look at me, please, with Romans 7, verse 14? Now, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Normally, I read out of New King James... I'm reading out a new living, so it's going to read a little bit differently, but I like the way this reads. Paul in Romans 7, what an open heart this is. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong... This shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm really not the one doing wrong. It's, it's sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that's war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. What an honest passage of scripture right there. Haven't you ever thought the same thing? I want to do what is right. I inevitably do what is wrong. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm still struggling with this. And he sums it up by saying this, verse 24, Oh, what a miserable person I am. New King James, oh, what a wretched man I am. And he asks this rhetorical question, who's going to free me from this sin? See, the problem is a lot of us just stop at the end of 24. What a miserable, wretched man I am, who will free me from this life dominated by sin? Who will free me from this body of death? And we never go on and read verse 25. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what it is. So now we can fully understand when Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can understand when Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that he still knows James is a complete, utter failure. And I still love him. I heard a great quote recently, and I'm not going to be able to say it exactly, but the guy said, I keep doing everything I can to make God not love me, and he still just keeps loving me. Isn't that the truth? So if you're sitting here tonight and you're still kicking yourself, please go on to verse 1 of Romans 8. Remember, chapter breaks and verses weren't in the original context. So now there's no condemnation for those that belong to Christ Jesus. Don't condemn yourself. Jesus knows you're an utter spiritual failure. He knows that, and he still loves you. He says we're going to keep working at this together. That's why he's given us the Holy Spirit. 
to convict us, to remind us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's why he says, I forgive you. That's why if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I don't want you to go home tonight giving up because you say, I can't do it all. I can't wholeheartedly follow the Lord, so I do nothing. Nope, that's not the answer. I don't want you to go home tonight now becoming legalistic. Okay, I'm getting up earlier, I'm staying up late, and I'm never going to do this again and never do that again. You're inevitably going to fail. You're going to go home tonight, and this is what you're going to do. You're going to say, who can free me from this body of death? And you're going to say, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what you're going to remember. And as you go home tonight, you're going to stop and say, Lord, I do want to wholeheartedly follow you. So you know what I want to do tonight, Lord? I do want to read a little more. I want to pray a little more. Lord, when I get up tomorrow morning, I want to start my day off with you a little more. I want to have eyes that see hurting people more. I want to have a heart that cares that people are going to hell more. I want to quit looking at numbers in my banking account so much. And I just want to really give it all to you, Lord. And what you're going to find out is just day after day, you're just going to become more and more like Jesus. And you're going to have some moments where you fall back. And that's where God's a God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances. Through grace and mercy, he forgives us. And you're going to get back up again. And you're going to say, I'm going to keep going. What's it say in the book of Proverbs? I think it says the uh, sinner falls seven times, but the righteous man gets up eight. You just get up one more time. And you just say, I'm just going to keep getting up again and again in the Lord. I cannot stress this to you enough. Do not go home tonight defeated because you're more than a conqueror in Christ. And do not go home tonight legalistic because you will burn yourself out. Go home tonight realizing it's all about Jesus Christ and just wholeheartedly follow him. See what happens. It's absolutely amazing. All right, 8 o'clock here. Caleb is a wonderful guy. We'll hit some more Caleb stuff later as we continue through our study here in Joshua. Any final questions, comments about anything here? John. I love grace and mercy too. And that's what we've got to make sure we end with is the idea of grace and mercy because if we don't end with grace and mercy, we're going to walk in defeat and legalism. All right, let's pray then. Lord, thank you. Thank you for just your grace and your mercy. And Lord, who will save us from this wretched body of death? Thank God it's Jesus Christ. Lord, there are areas in our life we're not giving over to you. Seek us, try us, show us, lead us, guide us. Empty out those hidden closets that we may truly follow you. To die to that, to live for you. We say thank you, Lord. Oh, Lord, help us to be a Caleb, to wholeheartedly follow you. Be it at 40, be it at 85, wherever it's at, that we give it all to you. In the name of Jesus, in your name. Amen. We have a wedding on Saturday. If we could have some help uh, getting the stage cleared off, it would be greatly appreciated. So you guys have a good week and God bless.